Hello, and welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. We are bringing you conversations with innovators, creative outliers, misfits, rebels, and crazy ones from the Sense Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. My life has been spent seeking out extreme perspectives to inspire creativity and help some of the world's most innovative companies to be more innovative. This month, we're talking to the outlier and new kid, Kurt Backer. Keep listening as we discuss collaborative resilience and the importance of community in times of crisis, diversity of thought, behavior change post-COVID, and how research was an industry and is now a skill set for defining what problems we need to solve. We talked to Kurt about his journey across continents, from Caribbean Island to Colorado, how he had to decide between art school and business school, his pioneering work at the edge of culture, and how this journey has taken him to become the head of strategy at the PwC Experience Center in Amsterdam. Hi, Kurt. So pleased you could join us today. Hi, Jeremy. I'm happy to be here. I think a nice way to think about what we're really trying to do here with the podcast is to tell some of your story. I'd like to ask you who you are, what do you do, where are you in the world, how weird are you? Are you early, an early adopter, an outlier, misfit, rebel, or a crazy one? All right, well, let's start by saying that I'm probably an outlier, um, which then would loop us back to the first question, which is, who are you? Because <laughs> that really goes back to my, uh, I've always been an outlier, because I grew up as a little kid on a Caribbean island, uh, moved back to the Netherlands, which is where I'm from, ultimately. Um, was, was the new, basically, I was the new kid, you know what I mean? And that's sort of who I've always been. I am still the new kid any, everywhere I am. Where am I? Uh, currently live in Amsterdam. Um, actually, last night we had a one-year uh, uh, celebration, which is we're cheating because it's uh, one week next week from now, but we can't do it then. Um, we lived in Colorado actually for 12 years before um, coming back to Amsterdam. So I've been here, uh, and I was here before also. And the short so, version is I've lived all over the world. You know, I've always been on the inside and on the outside, everywhere I am, which makes me at home everywhere. Um, well, we first met um, in Amsterdam when you were running an organization called Fan Club. And that was probably 20 years ago, if not a little bit longer. And I think one of the reasons we got to know each other is we've had very similar journeys in terms of what we are interested in. And that's really what prompted the conversation today was a, a post that you had shared on LinkedIn. But it would be great to understand a little bit more about that journey you've been on. So if, even from maybe before we first met at Fan Club. Um, well, Fan Club was definitely a formative and uh, experience for me and a big deal when we started it. But uh, I did have a professionally, uh, of course, a trajectory before that. Um, I guess it started at the end of high school when I had to make a decision on um, what I was going to study. And I got accepted into art school and I got accepted into business school. And I had to make a choice. And I thought that was really unfair because couldn't people see that those are the same thing. Ended up choosing business school and doing the art stuff on the side, ran a student magazine uh, in the beautiful city of Groningen, actually. After that, 
got my first job at BBDO Amsterdam, big ad agency as a, as a planner and researcher. And that's, um, so that's where I started in advertising, traditional advertising. I learned a lot, especially in the field of strategy. At the time, they were like the best strategy shop in, in the Netherlands. So it was fantastic. But it was incredibly traditional advertising agency, like literally TV commercials and uh, print ads. That was it. I ended up doing actually a project on the side together with a good friend of mine, Jessica, for, um, man, we, we, I think we started with Adidas, actually. They were looking for, they were looking for a trend agency, and we, uh, we, we were asked to, to join in the pitch, and we won it. Um, and we were like, oh, shit, let, let's do this, you know? And then we got Levi's also. Um, so we, we were like, yeah, we're crazy not to do it. So we started our own shop, which was fan club. Um, the idea of fan club was basically uh, that we were playing at the intersection of culture and commerce. And um, we wanted to bring brands together with tastemakers, sort of in multiple, uh, in multiple ways. First and foremost, uh, we thought that if brands had to become part of culture, the only way to do so was to work with people who create that culture. Um, so instead of being traditional advertising creatives, sitting in between four walls, coming up with quote unquote brilliant ideas for ads without any feedback, without any input, um, and therefore without any too deep resonance, work with the folks who are actually doing that just because they do it. So uh, part of the idea of Fan Club, we had a shop actually called the Fan Shop and people could, in the creative community in Amsterdam, could become a fan or a member for 50 euros a month and in return, use the space. Fans Worldwide, actually, you guys did the A4 art uh, exhibition there, I believe, yes. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and it sort of became a physical version of a, I guess a blog, a little bit avant la lettre almost, because I think this is like early 2000s, um, where we had content by people in our community, whether they were exhibitions or new creative work or art students presenting their year-end uh, show, and mixing it in with brand stuff, like Nike, the product launches there, etc. But that was only one part of what we did. A big part of it was using our network as a creative resource also for for brand, well, let's call it activations. That's probably the most of the stuff that we did. So we worked with Smirnoff and all kinds of like more trend-focused brands, you know, to, to bring them to life with our community. Um, and we also used our community as a target audience, right? Because it was all based, at the time, that was really revolutionary. And now you're like, that's how it works. Uh, but the whole notion yeah. of word of mouth marketing. I, I think that's really important to call that out for anyone who's listening and thinking, Hannon, isn't this how it works? But yeah, this is early 2000s and, you know, trying to explain this stuff to people. I don't even think Malcolm Gladwell had published Tipping Point by that point. So, you know, the whole idea of social networks and mavens, uh, that, that lexicon of language and those models weren't even anywhere near the mainstream. They were absolutely um, on the edges of culture, right? And that's, and that's exactly where you were working. That's right. I mean, Facebook hadn't even been created yet. Yeah. I remember <laughs> us. I, I mean, I remember we were at fan club and at some point somebody talked about, like, yeah, there's this new social network from Harvard. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's crazy, right? Yeah. yeah really crazy. So, right. Part of the reason uh, that, we, that we wanted to have that community around us. And at some point we had also a couple of thousand people uh, circling us was uh, to, to have an early warning sign for trends, um, you know, that we use for, uh, for brands as well. But yeah, that was fan club. And, and how did that journey progress? What are the other milestones along the way? And, and, how, and how did this 
evolve obviously from the fringes to the mainstream but what other you know what other journeys have you been on between then and now after after five years of fan club actually my business partner and i split up and it was actually kind of interesting uh because um i mean the short version is that for me um i was ultimately the the brand guy so to say so for me the network was a means to an end ultimately to really help brands become more relevant and for her equally legitimate it was exactly the other way around right the brands were there and ultimately to uh yeah to bring culture forward and she wanted to be an artist and a curator and uh, all, all good stuff as well but it was paralyzing us as a business you know that we both had two different visions on on, on what to focus on and i think it's in particularly an interesting dilemma because it's really the larger dilemma that you face you know with culture versus commerce like how do you bring those two together because there is tension there just is and you can't deny it um so it was a super interesting thing um basically what ended up happening is we split up and uh, i moved forward with my part of the business and the same for her um so she ended up yeah still doing uh, a lot of uh, yeah opinion leader marketing and and, and pr work and I started focusing more on the, yeah, let's say bigger strategic issues. Um, I was fortunate that one of our clients at the time was uh, Nike and uh, they stayed with me. Um, at the time I was working with a Benelux focus on doing research for product development, but uh, the Nike headquarters are here in, the, in, the, in, in, uh, in Amsterdam or Hilversum, of course. So um, yeah, I got, I got introduced to some good people there. And yeah, for the next couple of years, I ended up doing the same thing, but basically for the whole EMEA region. So I became their go-to person for everything equipment uh, related. And it was, we had a blast because three times a year, I took uh, a whole uh, team of product developers from, uh, from Beaverton together with some marketing folk from, uh, from the Hilversum office on tour through Europe. We picked three cities and uh, we would do ethnographies. We would go to people's homes. We would uh, do retail tours. Um, immerse ourselves ultimately uh yeah with the goal to uh to help them with the product development but also the marketing of those yeah most mostly backpacks but yeah it was, was pretty fun so whether it was uh women's fitness um culture in uh in istanbul or uh, teenagers on the on the schoolyard in moscow um, we went everywhere so that was really really fun i actually at some point we my wife and i made the plan to go that we wanted to go to america and I, well, I was trying to figure out ways to uh, to make that happen. I actually just got a good contact with a really great uh, headhunter in, in New York City who every time uh, when I visited New York City, uh, my wife's from New York, just so you know. So whenever we were there, I just would meet with her. And at some point, uh, she connected me with an agency in Miami called Christian Porter Bogaski. He said, like, yeah, you're going to like those guys because they are different. They do new things. They're not a traditional ad agency. They want to change culture, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I met up with them, went back and forth one day, and we were on vacation there. Uh, really liked them, but I couldn't do Miami. I was like, yeah, sorry, guys, that's a bridge too far um, culturally. Just, I mean, now I could do it, but at the time, coming from Europe, it felt pretty shallow, you know? I mean, in hindsight, I would say wrongly so because... I've lived in America afterwards for 12 years and it's incredible and so diverse and, you know, just keep having an open mind is what I've learned in life in general. But anyway, um, at the time I was like, eh, it feels a bit like a stretch, but they were like, well, we're actually opening up shop in Boulder, Colorado. So fast forward, half a year later, we moved to Colorado. That's basically how that happened. 
Um, they just opened up shop there. They, I think they rented an old indoor soccer field as their new office. They ended up about four or 500 people working there, but at the time, I think they were 40 or something when I, when I started. But yeah, that was a big change. There was, um, I mean, it was a big change because it was back to an agency still, uh, moving countries, um, not doing your own thing anymore. But um, the, yeah, the challenges were pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So we're talking now 2000, late 2007. So right before the crisis, like literally half a year later, uh, that all that stuff started, right? And I was working on American Express on a super cool project, by the way, for American Express Open, which was, um, well, it's something that the, we helped them create. So at the time it didn't exist, but uh, it was basically the idea was to create a community of small business owners and bring small business owners together. Uh, actually, it turns out the timing was perfect, given the fact that the crisis hit, because, you know, on the one hand, I mean, actually the research that I did also sort of laid the foundation for that insight, which is that how back in the day, let's say in the 80s or 80s, the hip hop uh, musicians were glorified and then the house and dance people were glorified. But in the 2000s, it became the entrepreneurs, right? And the small business people also, like the new, the new, the new rock stars in a way. But the reality of being a small business owner is far from it because, um, you know, go to a, I don't know, regular florist or whatever, and there's like an employee working in the front line, working with the customers and who's in the back slaving away, you know, and doing all the stuff, the owners like hidden and visible working day and night, but put them together in a, let's say you go to, to some birthday party and there's, there are 30 people and there happen to be somewhere two entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter what industry, somehow they find each other. Right. And there's just this kinship, this, this instant connection, like that, the issues they are dealing with that, how, how universal they are. So, um, yeah, when we uncovered that, uh, we're like, okay, um, how the best way for us to help small business owners is by bringing them together. So the idea was to, uh, to build a community. Um, the idea was like strength in members, not just strength in numbers. Um, so that basically led to American Express Open, a small business community um, that ultimately was the foundation for the success of Small Business Saturday, which is a uh, day American Express basically invented a new American holiday after, uh, after Black Friday and before Cyber Monday to stimulate um, uh, yeah, small businesses, which was a tremendous success and actually has been, I, somebody told me recently that it has actually been voted by the American Congress to be an official American holiday. I think it's fair to say that the uh, American Express Open community was, was instrumental in, you know, and making that a success because it's, I mean, it's a great idea. It was not our idea. It was American Express's idea. Oh, kudos for them. But going from an idea like that to actually having it be embraced by culture, that's a big deal. And that you don't do that without actually real people care about it and embrace it because they could also decide not to put those stickers on their front door. You know what I mean? Having built that community and having those early, let's call them early adopters who really liked American Express and who were already part of this American Express open community, embrace it and spread it, I believe was instrumental in, in even getting any energy going. But it was interesting because uh, here I was working on my second community project in a way, like with fan club, we did, the, yeah. did it and, and this ended up being a similar kind of, uh, kind of thing. Um, so what happened next? Oh, then I had a little stint in New York actually. I, I got, um, I mean, honestly, the, so what happened, the, the crisis hit, um, the agency had, agency had layoffs and um, 
especially people working on American Express because it was still like, uh, you know, financial industry company. Um, but I um, basically immediately got an offer from RGA, which is a digital, uh, yeah, transformation agency. I wouldn't even know how to call them actually. They started out as a production agency and have sort of transformed themselves over the course of the years. And I mean, I had a blast. It was an amazing learning experience and also opened my eyes in a way to the fact that there's a whole different world of types of agencies. Because um, I really, you know, I was, I fully began in the world of marketing and of advertising and marketing. Of course, with Nike, did a lot of insights and product development work, more physical than not digital. Did the community work at, at, at Crispin, which definitely got me into digital, but really going to RGA opened my eyes like, oh, there's a whole new digital world actually happening. And all that stuff that I've been working on, uh, you know, like with fan club, it was physical. It was exactly the same principle, but it was hardcore physical. It was a physical space with a physical community to really see like, oh, but this is really, really right where it's happening right now. But actually, we thought we would like New York, but it was, you know, with two little kids, it was actually kind of hard work. Where the first time going to Boulder, Colorado was kind of like a bit of a, a bit of a fluke. The second time we were like, yeah, we really want to be there. So I uh, contacted my old boss uh, who hired me at, um, uh, at Crispin initially. He had left uh, with John Winter and started a new agency called Victus and Spoils, which was uh, uh, basically based on the idea of crowdsourcing. So the idea was, could we start a creative agency where our entire community, our entire creative force is not within our, within our four walls, but outside of it. All we have on the inside is a few curators and people who can manage that. Uh, but other than that, really work only with the community. Uh, so that sounded pretty exciting. So um, yeah, he hired me to come back and head up strategy for that uh, for that new shop. I mean, that was fantastic. We worked on uh, we basically built our own software to uh, to facilitate and manage the the community, and also really learned some really cool learnings along the way. One that I thought was really interesting is that the idea that the, the community and the crowd is uh, a great resource for creative ideas. That was, that, that was actually quite a kind of a tough one because you could get a lot of bad stuff. And it's a lot of work to groom it and to fix it, but it worked really, really well for strategy, you know, and it sort of makes sense because um, you got instant diversity of thought, um, people who are knowledgeable or have opinions about a certain topic uh, are really, um, yeah, inclined to share that and are interested in doing so. So um, even though maybe the ideas that come out in themselves are bad, what they represent is amazing. You know, the insights behind it. It's a really great alternative way of learning in a way. Um, so after, after doing that, at some point the agency got acquired and honestly, it wasn't interesting anymore uh, for me um, and sort of turned into a traditional agency. And so I went back to doing my own thing and being a consultant. And that's what I've done for the past five years, well, minus the last year, I mean, so the past five years before moving back to the Netherlands. And I basically worked with, I started working initially with smaller UX shops in Boulder, because there's plenty of them, and also smaller ad agencies, sort of spin-off agencies, you know, from Christian Porter, uh, and then other agencies that started going there. Sort of became a hub more and more, um, which is great for me, because as, as a planner, um, you know, the smaller shops typically don't have planning in-house. I work with multiple of them. And then started working more and more with larger design agencies in the Bay Area, San Francisco. Um, remote and then being there for a couple of weeks kind of thing. 
Um, yeah, last but not least, um, came back here also to, I uh, got a great job offer here from uh, PwC Experience Center, uh, one of the big four companies um, to, yeah, to help set up strategy at the Experience Center here in Amsterdam. So that's what I've been doing now for the past, well, since September, so uh, 10, 11 months now. What I started doing with FanClub is ultimately still what I'm doing right now. Um, but it's gone from being on the fringe to being at the, at the core of digital transformation and consulting large corporations about where they have to go next. That's awesome. And thanks for sharing that story, your story, Kurt. Of, and as you think across, across that time, you talked about sort of going from the, the fringe to the mainstream. Uh, you know, over that period, what were the, what were the big... Um, kind of what were your big breakthroughs or what are the big learnings? What have you taken away from, from, from that period? I mean, I'm definitely hearing, you know, community is a big theme in yeah. there. Collaboration is a big theme in there. Working with culture is a big theme in there. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, have you got any sort of personal sort of either experiences or, you know, insights that you carry with you? Yeah, well, what's interesting that the, the big idea that I started working on back then still stands. So there haven't been any big transformations. So it's more about better tools or having done it more often, recognizing patterns in how to do things. But um, yeah, I mean, probably the most important thing is the problem definition. I mean, for me, that's also probably a big part of the design thinking philosophy or however you want to call it, you know, which is like, it's like an approach to, to dealing with, yeah, ambiguous situations and sort of identifying problems that are worthy of solving, you know, and doing so in a way that that's beneficial, et cetera, uh, and viable and all that's called the good stuff. Like what we do as strategists. And maybe actually when I started out, I was fully in solution space. That's what I was there to do, you know? Tell me what your problem is and we'll find a way to solve it. And that's actually also the place where most agencies typically play, which is why they're becoming less and less important. Um, because the solutions are pretty straightforward. The problem is you don't know which is the one you should uh, employ. But figuring out the right problem to solve through the lens of the user, sort of translating that, that meaty big business problem into something people actually care about uh, that's really really hard once you get to the right problem definition for your design challenge once you get to the right design challenge then you're up and running but 50 percent of the work is being done you still need to yeah. talk to people to do it in the right way but there's two things right do the right uh, do the right thing and do the thing right um, so i'm more and more focused now on doing the right thing so that then we work with the teams to do the things right. And I think it's important also for us as strategists, we are connected, we are part of the project all the way through. So it's not that we are just doing the beginning piece and then pass on the baton and say, good luck to the designers. Absolutely not. We can't because it's a co-creative process, right? Um, where we are also always representing the users, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, that, that, that first part, and this is actually something that I'm trying to figure out. This is an interesting one which is like, how can you do that problem space uh, thinking and, and, and work 
uh, efficiently because we're not in this in the era anymore where you get six weeks or three months to do these massive research studies, right? So how can you still do that without using those traditional waterfall kind of methods, but also without being squeezed into a box where you just gotta wing it and come with something that's not really good and fundamental, um, which is uh, once again where communities come in and ongoing uh, ongoing conversations and understanding of your audience. And it's, so I don't think research is a project anymore. It's just an element of everything you do. Uh, but as such, also less important as a factor in itself. You know, you, research used to be an industry, the research industry, and now it's more like a skill set that's part of uh, a lot of other disciplines. Um, where I, I still believe that we as strategists are the keeper of the core expertise, you know, and disseminate it and uh, coach people and develop the new technologies and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I think we're the, we're the guys that need to interpret that information, all of that data, that kind of collective intelligence that we gather from our communities and our networks. And we're the ones that help to ask a better question. We're the ones that ask, how might we? Mm -hmm. And those how might we's are our problem statements. You know, how might we solve for X? And I think that is, you know, simply put, that's what we spend most of our time doing is making sure we're solving the right problem. And I really love that distinction that you're making around the solution providers and the problem definers. And so bringing us right up to date, you are now uh, head of strategy at PwC's Experience Center. Um, what is the scope of your role there? Um... Well, I mean, simply, I mean, the, the simple version would be to uh, to represent the voice of the user and to make sure we collaborate with users. I mean, if I were to say one big trend or one big learning maybe over the course of the year, and that is an important one actually, is that back then we re I really did big projects, like could, do a, could be a massive research project that was taking three months or six months. That's That's not how it's going anymore. So... Um, so we work in, uh, in sprints and insights are crucial all the time, but th that also takes away the need to do that massive upfront uh, work necessarily. So it's a lot of experimentation and learning and designing at the same time in, in ongoing iterations. So yeah, so I, I guess that there will be a big learning there. Um, but yeah, a lot of companies, of course, are now in, um, in need of transformation. And what's interesting that the COVID situation it's only accelerating that. Well, that was one of the big, big things. You, um, you, you wrote a really great article on, uh, well, crisis seems to be a theme. You talked about the crisis, the financial crisis in 2008. And, mm. you know, we now have another existential threat with, with COVID. Uh, and you, you shared some thoughts on behavior change. Mm -hmm. um, could you just share a few a few highlights from what you've observed yeah sure well i actually read this study which i thought was fascinating which was that it takes about 66 days on average to change a habit um and there's a big range right when things are super simple like um drinking a glass of water after breakfast it takes about 18 days for people to to take that on and something more complex uh like cutting smoking or something could be almost like a year but 66 days is pretty much the average. And um, this is actually about when the COVID thing was going on about two months. I was like, oh, we're about to hit that. 
you know what what's it going to mean for for new behaviors um and people's the expectations people have of digital products and experiences so that that was sort of the starting point there and another starting point there was the idea that knowing that that is happening what should or can businesses do with that because this behavior change will happen irrespective it's just what's going on right so what can you do as a company to uh to embrace that yeah to get out of it stronger and i sort of would uh, compare it to uh to formula one the safety car you know here are all those companies raising each other to come out as the winner that's basically how markets you know how, how, how they operate and all of a sudden in comes this corona thing which is like the safety car that slows everybody down and some competitors are forced to to slow down their speed or drivers lagging behind to get the opportunity to catch up um you know you can decide to take a pit stop um or you can um decide to do nothing and maintain your position but basically um yeah you gotta you gotta rethink what you wanna what you wanna do and what you so and i also got read this work from scott galloway i've sort of followed his work and he was saying that Corona is really, it's not creating new trends, it's just accelerating existing trends, right? Companies yeah. have to become more digital. Uh, we do have to work on sustainability and, and green economy. And I don't know, there's, there's, there are certain things that are just, they have to happen. And yeah, okay, we're dealing with these lemons of Corona. How can we turn it into lemonade? That's sort of what I started to think. And um, well, of course, I, I started seeing what companies were doing. I think what you could say is that it's not, and this is not a really interesting thing, actually, I find, like about innovation and companies being successful, that ultimately, because people always talk about, yeah, it's, it's the new company are disrupting. And yeah, they are, but there can also be old companies or existing companies who, who, can, who can innovate as well. I mean, I think Netflix is a great example, you know, a company that keeps innovating. They started out sending out DVDs in the mail and um, basically became a streaming service and now they make content. It's really more about adaptability the ability to grow and uh and respond or thrive within changing circumstances that determine success like basic branding thinking in a way like as a company you don't provide this one thing that you that's your current product you provide something bigger than that of course it's the whole jobs to be done thinking in a way but uh you know it's true you don't just make a car you provide transportation uh etc that's a really important yeah. thing to uh to realize yeah i've just been um writing about the same thing. You know, you can kind of get your incremental changes that, that, that come through in time. So for example, you've got retail banking, where these shifts took us from cash to check, cards to cashless, and apps to contactless. But that's kind of more incremental and kind of like linear. But actually the real thing about innovation, I think, like you say, when you, particularly when you talk about transportation, you know, that's when other categories can be more disruptive. So those definitions get blurred. So it's not, it goes from incremental to transformative. So you've got horses to cars. We know that that was all about Henry Ford. Then we've got, you know, how do we travel? You go from boats to planes, but then the most transformative leap we've had altogether is from planes to video calls, right? And, you know, and that's where we've seen behavior change virtually overnight, you know, and virtually meaning Zoom. And, you know, Zoom now transports us around the world to our clients, our colleagues, our families. And, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been unthinkable that a video conferencing firm would be worth more 
than many airlines. You know, it's just kind of, it's a, it's a completely, you know, different shift. And I think those are the creative leaps that are actually most interesting. So where there have been, you know, some businesses which, you know, their empires are starting to fall, others, we've just seen this massive acceleration. I, th I think it's been a really remarkable time to be observing these things. No, that's right. So it's really about, okay, how, how is the, what's going on in the world right now? Um, how can we still do what the core, what's the core of what we do, whether it's providing transportation or lodging or providing memory of, you know, providing memories or, um, yeah. What business are we really in? Yeah, exactly. What business are you really in? What does that mean in the current era, basically? And I think in order to do so, yeah, you really have to understand how our consumers changing now. Um, you know, they're not flying anymore to follow your example, but they still need to be transported. Sort of, and I hear this so often, I'm sure you do as well, where, um, you know, I sometimes I, I recommend to clients to do research and then they're like, no, we don't, we know our people, you know, we, we know their needs, we know who they are. Um, yeah. And I think more than ever now, you have to understand that you can no longer assume that you know your users. You may, you may, you may not, you may know certain parts, but um, you really have to start fresh. Yeah, sort of, yeah, look at them with new eyes, you know, without yeah. assumption, with an open mind. Because I, I, I you know, I've, I've heard these stories also firsthand from people where, I mean, it already feels like a long time ago, but remember when the supermarkets were actually empty four months yeah. ago or so? Like all of a sudden people's favorite brands may not have been there. So they were forced to take on something else. Or remember when, when some brands all of a sudden started to give away content for free or starting help desks and others were radio silent and there were also some tone deaf ones. So all that was happening. So what that results in is people are shifting. I mean, I'm not saying that they will all become loyal to a new brand, but they might, you know, because people are now out of necessity or choice moving. And you need to know as a brand, what's happening are people leaving me are new people coming to me who are they you know yeah uh, you cannot assume anything i think you had a uh, on reading your article you had a really nice term uh, which is collaborative resilience yeah and i think you said that is about working together to rebound positively adapt to and thrive amidst amidst changing conditions i'd love to hear a little bit more about that okay yeah sure well, what, what can I say about collaborative uh, resilience? I mean, it's, I did a project a couple of, a couple of years ago for Colorado State about, about resiliency. It was actually because we had a lot of floods and fires in the state and they were looking for, they actually wanted to work with the population of the state in order to prepare for future, yeah, for if, if this were ever to happen again, basically. Uh, how, how can we be better prepared? And they started the whole office, the resiliency office and it was the whole thing. Anyway, that stuck with me. It was a super cool project. It did a massive co-creation thing. We don't have to get into it, but that's sort of how I, uh, so when I, when this thing with COVID was happening, it sort of popped with me. It's like, hey, that's sort of the same thing. You know, we have to be resilient here. And resilient is not just about responding, um, but it's really also about thriving amidst changing conditions. And that was the other click I had, which was that um, actually COVID is not so new at all because things have been changing for quite a while now. And it's sort of like the new paradigm. 
let's not get too caught up in this whole thought of having to respond to COVID and uh, because these trends are going on, companies have to transform. And we talked about that already. Uh, and we know that it's really the most adaptable who are uh, most likely to, uh, to, yeah, to change. And the challenges are just too big for anybody to do by themselves. No company can solve this. No individual can solve this. No country can solve this all by themselves. It's just not, the idea is even ludicrous, right? There is only one, I mean, and that's maybe the, I wouldn't call it beauty because there's nothing beautiful about COVID, but it's more like, this is the first time when everybody understands that it has to be collaborative. If there's one party not joining in, the whole system will fall apart. So that's the collaborative part of collaborative resiliency, which is that, yeah, the companies need to work together with consumers and other stakeholders in ongoing cycles of iteration and co-creation, yeah, to, to create the problem um, in line with the purpose that they share with their customers, right? Um, whatever that purpose is, whatever their reason for being in this world is, um, they have to create that with people, with humanity, not just, it's not even gonna yeah. be effective. There's just no way, you know, and I know you and I have had discussions before about, you know, open innovation and permeable organizations uh, where the boundaries between what the organization is and isn't are, are blending. And I think it touches on that as well. And in a way, it also really has to do with the notion of truly embracing diversity and diversity of thought, because, uh, I mean, that's a hot topic as well now, right? That a lot of companies really now feel that they have to uh, adopt. And I think there's a real connection here, which is that, yeah, diversity is, of course, not just about getting people from diverse backgrounds. Sure, of course, you need that. But why do you want it? Because you want to bring diverse perspectives. So you move from who you are to what you know. But ultimately, the third layer is who you know. You also really, really need to know your customers in this case. And because diversity so far has too often just been talked about as um, well, not just as a compliance thing, but also as something that just is happening within an organization like your employee base. But it's still the same people talking to each other within the same four walls. If that's the case, you're still not innovating. So it's really about truly opening up to society and, and, and getting all those diverse thoughts in. Yeah, there's a, there's a really great definition that I read from the Harvard Business Review recently, which defines cognitive diversity as it's the differences in perspective or information processing styles. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're schooled like a historian versus say a physicist might think about things in a different way. And so those, you know, that is what is shaped by training, life experience, et cetera. But it's specifically how individuals think about and engage with new and uncertain or complex situations. And I think certainly what we've seen working this way, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, there are some really amazing benefits of doing that. I think, you know, every team that we've worked with who embraces cognitive diversity solves problems faster. I think they have, that exposure to those diverse perspectives really helps them to get to br deliver breakthrough results because they see things differently. So they kind of see opportunities differently. And I think that really helps that entrenched corporate mindset that you can often get you know it, it starts to overcome that uh, cognitive bias that you see a lot I think that you know 
if you embrace it, it means you can understand, you know, cultural perspectives faster. You can adopt those more rapidly into the business. That's the permeability piece you were just talking about. You've got to let the culture wash in, you know, and that's where I think, in our, you know, and it's not just, it's the culture wars that we're seeing right now. It's like, that's really tripping a lot of people up and it is actually a minefield. There's some very important issues that are incredibly important for us to address. Um, but I think working, just having that cognitive diversity around you, it just allows you to see future opportunities. It allows you to kind of start to identify them in a much more systematic way. And I think that's one of the powerful things that kind of you've highlighted from what you're sharing. I mean, my big takeaway, you know, it's like if you've got a crisis, you need a community and you need to collaborate with that community. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, and, I, and you say it's all about future, but I also think it's about now. You know, I think it's about, uh, yeah, doing things right now. You know, I, for me, innovation, I used to think, I used to want to do really, really big things. And now I just want to do really, really small things that are really tangible. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I do, I think it's about now, but then I also believe that the future is here and it is about the future is here and now. So no, I, I'm, right. I'm completely, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah. Now, I feel that we might be coming to the end of listeners' attention span for a, for a podcast, but I'd like to ask you a question. Because we've been talking about the crisis, because we've been talking about the community, because we've been talking about collaboration, if you could ask the Sense Network to help you change one thing in the world for the better, what would you change and why? Mutual understanding across those different cultures. Yeah. Because I think that that's a big issue. Um, and just make people open for each other, you know, new ways of thinking. I think just that, that general sense of empathy that currently seems to be lacking sometimes, you know. Um, I mean, if, if you want to talk about times of crisis, the typical response people have is to go back into the bunker. But the thing they actually ha have to do is reach out and start to connect to people. And I, I don't want to go to cheesy parallels, you know, from uh, uh, walls versus bridges or something like that. But uh, I mean, I do think ultimately that that is the, yeah, that's the power of, uh, of such a network of such diverse uh, people who are representing all the different viewpoints um, to get a broader understanding uh, across each other. Well, that is beautiful. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you for sharing a few insights from your journey over many different continents and many different projects. I'm very pleased that there were some of those common themes in there around community and collaboration, things that we all find really important here at Sense Worldwide as well. So uh, I think we can probably wrap it up there. Okay, well, thanks for having me. that brings us to the end of a great conversation with Kurt. If you're facing a crisis, you need a community to collaborate with. So as Kurt says, reach out and connect. Even if you don't have a crisis, ask yourself whether you really know your users and most importantly, what business you're in. We will be back soon with another mind-expanding conversation. Thank you for tuning into the Sense Network. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did like it, we'd love to hear what you think. So please leave us a comment and share it with your friends. 
In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at The Sense Network. And if you want to get hands-on with an innovation project to make things better and make better things for people and the planet, join The Sense Network. The link is in the description. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.